Thanks, Justin. I really appreciate how you kind of set us up each week. And uh, today, I want to talk about something that I think is um, that I think is uh, really personal uh, and maybe even uh, a little controversial. But I'm not trying to stir up controversy. I'm trying to speak to the heart of a matter, and that is this. I believe because I've had conversations with all of you. I've seen all of you in action, and we carry with us a very compassionate heart. I think I see a lot of justice, uh, a, a lot of concern for where we're at, but I also know that not all of us react the same way when we disagree, particularly as we look around in our society and see such civil unrest. When we see so much in the way of protests and statements being made, the question that comes up the question I think, especially as Christ followers, is what is my response? And so um, I wanted to do a series called Speaking Truth to Power. And that's even in itself kind of a controversial phrase. But I began researching where we got this phrase from. And the idea of speaking truth to power originated in 1955. It was an original Quaker um, pamphlet. And what they were looking for or advocating for was an alternative to violence. But it went as far back as 1917, and a society called the American Friends Service Committee had an original mission that grew out of a need to provide conscientious objectors with a helpful alternative to military service, both at home and uh, near battle. So the idea of a conscientious, conscientious objector has been with us for centuries, all the way back to the Roman Empire. But if you weren't going to go to battle, you were usually executed. But as we've evolved with human dignity and human rights, recognizing individual and personal conviction, we've created a category of conscientious objectors. But the thing that I want to clarify is is that's not just a, a inaction. That's not inactivity. You can be a conscientious objector and still be an activist. So as part of the World War I campaign, conscientious objectors were actually involved in collecting relief in the form of food, clothing, and other supplies for displaced persons in France. Now, the Quakers, who were kind of originally behind this whole movement, were asked to collect both old and make new clothing. They were asked to, as a part of the war effort, to grow fruits into vegetables so that they could be shipped to France for distribution. Young men and women sent to work in France provided relief and medical care to refugees. They repaired and rebuilt homes. They helped farmers re uh, replant fields that were damaged by war. And they even founded a maternity hospital. The idea of being a conscientious objector was not apathy or inaction. Resistance to violence didn't prevent one from also being part of a solution. In other words, their protest wasn't to make a statement or even to raise awareness, which seems to be what we see going on in our society today. Every group is trying to make a statement. Every sport is trying to make a statement. Cities are, are rioting. But in the original text of a conscious objector, their resistance to violence was to provide people 
with an alternative to violence. And so when we talk about speaking truth to power, what we realize is that there's ways to serve, aid, and participate even though we disagree with leadership decisions. Now, one question I think we need to be asking is, how do we disagree and also be part of a solution? In a society that's full of unrest, what happens when leadership is flawed and the masses aren't right either? Let me tell you a story about one man who I have just looked at, and he comes to us just from the last 150 years. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Lutheran pastor, he was a theologian, and he was uh, known for his unwavering resistance to the Nazi dictatorship when the majority of people living in Germany, including Christians, were too afraid to speak out. And now, at the age of 24, Bonhoeffer came to the United States to study in New York City's Union Theological Seminary. Now, Bonhoeffer uh, found that American seminary was not as rigorous as he was used to, but he had this life-changing experience and friendships while he was here. He was living in New York City, and one of his classmates was a black fellow seminarian by the name of Frank Fisher. Frank Fisher introduced this German 24-year-old immigrant uh, to what was then what is still called the Abyssinian Baptist Church, a famous church that's gone on for decades in Harlem, where Bonhoeffer began to teach in this African-American church. He taught Sunday school, and he formed a lifelong love of African-American spirituals, and a collection of which he took back to Germany. But he became so sensitive to not only the social injustices experienced by minorities that he found here in America, but also the ineptitude of the church to bring about integration. Bonhoeffer began to see from below. Those were his words. From the perspective of those who suffer oppression, now returning to Germany at the risk of his own life because the Hit Hitler's rise to power was only growing. And so he began to teach in these underground seminaries at the risk of his own life. And he voiced opposition to Hitler's euthanasia program and the genocidal persecution of the Jews. Now, after being falsely accused of a plot to assassinate Hitler, he was quickly tried in sort of a kangaroo court, and along with his accused plotters, he was hanged, hanged by a piano wire on April the 9th, 1945, just as the Nazi regime was collapsing. About three days before the war actually ended, he lost his life. Now, my point is this. Well, I'm not suggesting that somehow we resist the powers that be to the point of death. You can disagree with the masses and be part of a solution. I'm praying that as people of faith, we would find our voice, but also find our contribution in the sea of opinions, in the sea of shame, in the sea of, of all the unrest, and, and figure out what is it that God is calling each of us to. And when it comes to resisting leadership or popular opinion, 
Violence or shaming is never actually a viable solution, but neither is apathy. Neither is living within some insulated bubble where I'm in an echo chamber of people who think like me. Protesting and marching might not be for everyone, but for a person of faith seeking to keep their heart sensitive to God's heart, prayer is always a needed first response. My hope is that we would be people so conditioned to prayer so that it resensitizes us, but it advocates for those who cannot or will not pray for themselves. Not just for others or for but also for me, for my heart, for my part, and my response. And as part of the masses, as part of the public in this democratic society, we need to ask the Lord in an open-ended question of examination and guidance. Now, this series, Speaking Truth to Power, is about finding strength as people of God who walk humbly, who love mercy, and who are willing to act justly. And last week, we looked at the boy, Samuel, who came to power in Israel by his ability simply to listen to God's voice when the word of the Lord was rare. That's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Today, we want to look at the man, Samuel, the leader, Samuel, who was now judge and prophet over all of Israel. Little context so we know before we read 1 Samuel chapter 8. At the time of the judges, Israel was theocracy. In other words, there were no kings. The most powerful position was that of a judge. God said, I'll be your king. But the people had something else in mind. They wanted an earthly king, just like every other nation around them. And they began to voice their displeasure. Now, this request was actually represented a rejection of God's covenant relationship with them. It was a rejection of the Lord himself. This is what the masses were demanding. And the Lord had been their protector. He had been their deliverer. He had repeatedly demonstrated the power on their behalf. And Samuel plays the role I think, of a conscientious objector because he disagrees with the masses and he even warns them what will happen, but he also doesn't quit on them either. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 20, I want to read this with you. You might follow along in your Bible just so you can uh, maybe write in the margins or jot some notes. It'll be in the chat section as well if you want to follow along there. But in verse 6, we read these words. But they said, give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. And so they are now doing that to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told them all that the Lord had to the people who were asking for a king. And he said, let me tell you, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He'll take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they will run uh, in foot 
of his chariots. And some will also will be assigned to commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others will plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to the attendants. He will take a tenth of all your grain. He will tax your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants. Your men servants and your maid servants and the best of your cattle and the donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and your, yourselves will become his slaves. And when this day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. And no, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. What do you do when the masses lack the wisdom, even having been told what it will actually be like? What happens? When the masses lack civil, civility or humility to listen and work toward a solution, what happens when leaders cater to the loudest or the most lucrative voices simply to stay in power? I don't know about you, but these are the questions that I'm asking. And there are important questions because they get to the heart of what we actually believe as individuals about God. And oh, by the way, if God is grieved, if God is upset, if God is brokenhearted, I want to be too. In the case of Israel, Samuel is respected, but he is just one man. But he had heard from the Lord. And in a last chance moment, he described to the crowd what their desires reveal, as well as what life will be like under a human king an oppressive king who becomes self-serving in all of his interests. This is, what, this is where we see the power of popular opinion. The masses can't seek or receive wisdom and counsel. The masses have already decided and mostly seek reactionary change, which doesn't actually mean wisdom or healing. In fact, Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, Some would trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the question is, what name of God resonates with you? What's the name of God that has already been revealed? Has God been revealed as your Savior, as your Deliverer, as your Protector, as your Healer? then not only is that something to trust him more in, that's also something that we're called to be in our society. Samuel resolves the problem. Now, well, let me just say this. In this instance of civil unrest, the question was not so much whether Israel should have a king, but rather how could they maintain covenant with God by having a human king? Remember, God was their king. It was a theocracy we will not be like all the other nations, except they said, can we be just like everyone else? 
Samuel resolves the problem by calling the people to renew their vow, their allegiance. You know, I pledge allegiance. He wants them to renew their allegiance to the Lord on the very occasion of the inauguration of King Saul. That's where we get in 1 Samuel 10. You can read and look at it for yourself. But by establishing a kingship within the context of God's covenant renewal, he leads them through kind of a renewal of their own wedding vows. Wedding vows being we are wed to God. Samuel placed the monarchy in Israel on a radically different footing from all of the surrounding nations. So the king of Israel was not going to be independent and his authority and his power separate from his accountability before God. In other words, I'm going to give you what you want, but the leadership and the people will still be accountable before the Lord. Well, this was different, but it satisfied both things. And so one of the greatest challenges with speaking truth to the power of the masses is that there's simply no room for dialogue. Now, without conversation, we always lack the humility required to listen. But I want to also be clear about something. We need room for outrage. Do you understand? If God has created us with this range of emotions, and part of it is to feel anger towards injustice, there has to be a healthy expression of outrage. We need room to protest. We need room to address injustices and to interrupt what has become systemically normal. We need place even for civil disobedience when it comes to systemic sin and injustice. My contention, whether you find yourself as a marcher, a protester, an informed voter or not, as people of faith, we should always look for ways, individual and personal ways, to be part of restoring and redeeming God's creation, not retreating to the safety of of an echo chamber or a bubble. Samuel actually has the power positionally to stop it. Instead of it, he simply warns them, and he continues to serve God to the people. This is what it means to be a conscientious objector. Not a simple pacifist, not apathy. He spoke truth to the power of the masses, and it still became a mess. The results were exactly how he predicted. So what we find is throughout all of history, God renews covenant relationship. And ever since sin entered the human condition, God has been relentlessly working to repair, restore, and redeem the creation so that we can live in harmony with God. So if I believe that I bear the image of God, if you believe that you are created in the image of God, then part of my purpose is to also be part of God's deliverance and care and salvation in some way. It doesn't have to be huge, but it does have to be active and intentional and sensitive to what is on God's heart. So I think it's critical that we're willing to cross social divides and respond to the needs 
among us. Civic engagement is part of the Christian's mandate to what Jeremiah would call, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which you live, for if it prospers, you shall prosper. And if we think change is needed, but don't agree or want to join a protest, there's always ways for us to respond. And at Mission Hills, we have sought from day one to cross social divides, not because it's easy or convenient or comfortable, but because it's needed, both for me and my surrounding neighbors in Austin. I need my heart to be resensitized, not to be insulated or calloused. Now, we have, as part of that plan, developed a vibrant relationship with immigrant communities, especially the Burmese. Why? Because they need our help or because we can learn from their faith when you don't have education, when you don't have net worth, when you don't come from any kind of a state, and all they have is Christ alone. I need them as much as I can help them. Or, you know, we're trying to respond to fragile, broken, and vulnerable families who have been part of the foster care system. And now, coming up next month, we're going to launch a new pilot group based on racial reconciliation called Be the Bridge. Now, you don't have to march. You don't have to protest. You don't have to agree with leadership to be part of God's salvation. But this racial reconciliation group is a, is a small number. It's, it's limited to about 10 people that is going to be led by Cherish and Damaris Taylor. And it's going to be once a month for eight months. It's not a small group that if you can fit it in, show up if you feel like it. It's a commitment with homework. But our hope is that at the end of it, as you work through issues of of, of bias and, 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 and privilege and, and kind of cultural understanding before God, because it is faith-based, that we would be able to launch more groups. See, you may or may not be an activist, even if you agree that there are social divides, injustice, and basic needs among us. God doesn't need the masses but he invites each of us personally and individually to be part of a reconciling bridge building work. And as we prepare for communion now, we're going to sing together, but I want you to consider some of the words you've heard. I want you to consider the text that we've read. I want you to just give ear to the voice of the Holy Spirit because the communion elements as we take the bread and drink of the cup, and even though it feels really ordinary, it's actually the thing that's supposed to help initiate a resensitivity of our own hearts because it represents God's reconciling work with us, to us. And before we would cast a stone or look down on another for how they're reacting, I want to consider how I need God's grace, how I need to reconcile my life with his. And so I want you to consider how you might need to reconcile your own relationship with God and maybe your own relationships with your fellow man. 
but let's begin to prepare. And I want to pray with you as we go into a time of worship, and then Dalen's going to lead us through the communion elements. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I pray that as we begin to sing now, as we prepare our hearts, that you would be um, present with us. Whatever is going on around us, whether it be the kids or the dog or, or just the birds chirping, I pray that you would center us on, on our commitment to you and our response in this world. I pray that we would find ourselves not as pacifists, but as conscientious objectors to the ways of the world, and yet we find our way to be part of your salvation. And so we pray your kingdom come in our hearts, your kingdom come in Austin as it is in heaven, your kingdom come in us so that your will can reign and work through us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.